0: to the hunter conservationist podcast so i'm holding uh in my hand here uh, a book which i think is a, uh, a fantastic piece of canadian historic literature um others have have thought that as well um This book was the winner of the Felicia A. Holton Book Award um, from the Archaeological Institute of America. It was the best archaeological book of 2009, um, awarded by the Society of American Archaeology, and it was also a City of Edmonton Book Prize. I'm just going to read a passage here out of the book. This book is the story of head smashed in Buffalo Jump, but it is more than that. It is a story of a tenacious people in their relentless pursuit of an extraordinary way of life. With few exceptions, these people were, and still are, nameless and faceless. They exist in a land of shadows we call the past, a period as vast as it is murky. It is a period that, despite its intrinsic opacity, never fails to stir our curiosity and imagination. The past is the ultimate abyss. We can venture to the moon, to the bottom of the oceans, penetrate the deepest jungles and explore the far reaches of the universe. We can never go to the past. Hence, we can never truly know it. We can only approach it obliquely, poking, prodding, conjecturing and mostly puzzling, as if peering around corners through the narrow lens of a periscope, seeing only little pieces of the past at any one time. But it's important to peer into this abyss because it it reflects, mirror-like, what it means to be human. Because we learn about what human beings have been and of what they are capable. And because if we look back far enough into this shadow land, we are all one. People who are anonymous need not be unknown. It is the role of archeology span and history to breathe life into those whose voices have been stilled by time. This book is called Imagining Head Smashed In, Aboriginal Buffalo Hunting on the Northern Plains. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Hall, your host. I'm Curtis Hall, your co-host. And we're in Edmonton, Alberta, and we are joined by archaeologist and the author of Imagining Head Smashed In, Jack Brink. Welcome, Jack.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Curtis. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, this is great. That's That was a powerful passage and... One of the things that resonated to me in your work is this is about people.
1: Yeah, that's T- right. I mean, the show generally is about animals, but in this case, it's animals and people and the interactions between them. And really the story of a buffalo jump is how did people get animals to drive, drive them to a cliff where they could kill them? I mean, this is an amazing story. And so it it's both people and animals, but I think it's the people component that helps pull you through the book absolutely. because you can relate and say what if I was one of them <laughs> what if I were, I was out there on the prairie and I had no pickup truck and no no uh, no gun no rifle
0: no food for the winter
1: and I had to somehow kill these animals so would I be able to think up something like this and pull off the kind of trick that they did
0: absolutely yeah it's 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 a fascinating story um I think it, 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 one of the uh, things, the descriptions that you had in there, is it was a story that lies behind the hunting of huge herds of buffalo. I mean, you know, in today' context, when we think about hunting, you just you know, thinking of like a single animal, you know, sorts of thing, and and <laughs> we're talking about literally like these huge herds of buffalo. It is so different. It it uh, it really really drew me in.
1: It does, and it, it and it it has so many implications for everything beyond that as well. Um, the herds we're talking about um, typically were probably in, in the range of 100, 150, 200 at an average buffalo jump or pound, which we can talk about as well, where they drove them into a corral. But the, um, think about it. When you kill 100 animals, it's not you killing one. It's everybody killing all of them. So what that does is it creates this communal aspect. This is all ours. It belongs to us, the people. It's not that's mine over there because that's my arrow, (laughs) because there might be 10 arrows in that animal, or there might be one spear, or you never know. And it really gets across to you the whole idea that when you walk away from there, it's the people dragging this stuff away that then share all that amongst them, because you did not go out and hunt your own animal. We collectively obtained 150 of them. Yeah. And obviously, the only way to economically and, and rationally use that is to share it. Yeah. So it creates a whole different, an egalitarian world that most of us are not used
0: to. Uh, yeah, no, definitely. And that that just it's such a powerful p- part of the book. Um, just before that passage I read, uh, you had said, uh, head smashed in Buffalo Jump, quote unquote, was the mother of all <laughs> Buffalo Jumps. Which, what does that mean?
1: <laughs> well, I, I think it's almost 10 years since I wrote the book now, so I, was, I think that phrase was kind of a little more popular at the time. Yeah. There was some wars going on or something, and I stole it from that. But what it means is uh, myself as a plains archaeologist and, and my colleagues, I think would agree that of the hundreds of buffalo jumps that we know about from the northern plains and, and central plains of North America, uh head smashed In stands out as perhaps the you know you hate to say the best or the greatest because somebody will argue with you somewhere but it is certainly one of if not the best preserved best example of a buffalo jump and how that all worked when you go there and you walk along the upper cliff and you look back into what we call the gathering basin where they rounded up all these animals this beautiful rolling hilly country and then you're, you're at the edge of a sandstone escarpment that goes down about 10 meters right straight below your feet and you, you, so you get it, you get okay, here's where they're going to take them to this is the destination and then you look down below that and there are these rolling knobs of kind of deposit of debris that have accumulated over time cascading down to the lower prairie and then it straightens out and flattens out onto the prairies and what you've got there is the whole story you've got the area where they rounded them up it's still intact it's there the drive to the cliff the cliff itself the place where they killed them down below and then the prairie up below where they actually dragged the carcass parts and did the butchering and the processing Mm -hmm. and there's many many buffalo jumps in north america i've been to a, a few myself and something is gone something's missing Uh, A road has taken out something. Uh, A river has actually cut away all the bone at the bottom and is no longer there. Or agricultural fields, in many cases, have taken out the areas where they rounded the animals up and and what we call the drive lane cairns, these alignments of rocks and stuff, which we can talk about. So things are missing. And this is a World Heritage Site. And it's the only one. It's the only North American World Heritage Site that's a bison jump or a buffalo jump. And that's because... It was recognized as if we're going to say, you know, pick one site to tell that story, and that's kind of how UNESCO operates. Pick one site; you get one stone edge; you don't get two. <laughs> uh, this is it. This is head smashed and so on. You know, okay. this is the mother of all of. It's not the mother. Well, actually, now that I just thought about something, it might actually be the mother, too, in the sense that it may well be the oldest buffalo jump. And therefore, you could sort of say others derived from it in some sort of a sense. It was the pioneer site, maybe? We are getting (laughs) the oldest radiocarbon dates, and we're just getting new ones since I published my book. We're getting new dates that are considerably even older than the ones we had when I published. So. There's now, you know, head smashing may have been being used uh, seven, eight thousand years ago instead of five or six thousand years ago.
0: Yeah. Think about that seven, eight thousand years ago. You know, what a lot of listeners might be familiar with hearing in sort of the contemporary um, literature and discussions are, you know, the Clovis people and the Folsom site um, being. Upwards of like 11 to 10,500 years before present. So <clears throat> we're not head smashed in as, like, if you're talking 8,000, it's.
1: You're closing in, although I would say the, the the dates for the sites that you mentioned would be pushed back now. Okay. You're citing kind of traditional dates <clears throat> in the literature, okay. but. Um, people have now converted for calibrations and errors in radiocarbon dates and sites like like the Clovis site now would be re- regarded as 12 say 12 and a half or something yeah. like that but, but still head smashing is you know getting within 4000 5000 years of the earliest signs we have of people yes, that's yes. pretty
0: impressive It vary. and yeah. and how long of a period was it used for
1: well that's a complicated story because uh you know you're digging imagine a whole piece of land where you are excavating these kind of like telephone booth windows that go down into the subsoil and you're hitting mm-hmm. a little bit of it at a time but all around you and the shoring and the walls that's keeping it from collapsing and killing you there are other deposits that you may never see and may tell a different story but of the telephone booths we have going into the ground at head smashed in. It looks like it was used, uh, well, the jump. Let's say the jump part was used, it looks like, from about 6,400 years ago up until about 5,000 years ago. Then there seems to be a gap of about 1,000 to 1,500 years and it, do, and it looks like for all the world that the site was not being used. Now, again, maybe a different telephone booth somewhere else on the site would give us a different view of that. But what we know right now is it seems to have been abandoned and then reused around 3,000 years ago. And from 3,000 years on, it was just in continuous use. Wow. So let me just point out when if people are confused thinking, wait a minute, I thought you just said it was used 8,000 years ago. We are, we are recovering bones from down on the prairie level. That's the level down below the kill, the, uh, the prairie the, level. The processing
0: area. Yeah, where, right? where, yeah. where they butchered and the processed the
1: animals. Uh, we're recovering bones from down there. These are definite bison bones, and they look like they've been butchered. Uh, and they're 8,000 years old, seven and a half to 8,000. The issue is you don't know that they got them by driving an animal over a cliff right? They could have camped right there and killed a buffalo nearby and dragged that bone there and consumed it. We know they camped there. Human beings were there 8,000 years ago. It doesn't mean they were using the jump. So what we say the oldest use of the jump is say 6,400. That's because the bones actually at the base of the cliff in those deposits that were pouring over like waterfalls those bones have been dated as old as 6,000. So they're the 6,400. There, there's no question. They were using the jump. Okay. So, you know, archaeology, that's the kind of science it is. <laughs> it's a process of discovery. And, uh, I mean, two years ago, we didn't know there was anything 8,000 years old. and seven and a half at that site. Wow. Now we do. So we just keep learning.
0: Now, before, before we move on a bit more, um, I want to recognize whose story this is. Um, who who are the primary nations in the plains that use these uh almost all the major tribal groups that we think of as
1: plains indians used buffalo jumps there was um certainly uh the cree did the crow the assiniboine uh the, some of these are you know u.s groups there's blackfoot in montana of course there's blackfoot in alberta uh there was a group called the grovant their uh, montana group Uh, They were uh, prominent users of buffalo jumps. Um, A number of groups in the States as well that I can't think of the name of, they would be operating out of, say, Colorado, Wyoming, the Dakotas. There are buffalo jumps in these locations. So Sioux and Sioux speaking peoples and Cheyenne people like that uh, were using buffalo jumps. Not as much. And some of them used more pounds. Uh, These pounds I mentioned earlier, these are literally a wooden corral. Uh, like a um, a circle or an oval a wooden corral that the people made with an opening perhaps of a couple meters wide, and they drove the animals into that pound and then closed the, the, the opening. Uh, and that of course tends to be more characteristic of wooded areas and not so much the open plains, because you need a lot of wood to make these. So as you move further east into areas of the Dakotas and um, uh, say Nebraska, you get into the eastern parts, you're getting into more treed area, and they're Pounds were used more, and like in Saskatchewan Alberta and in the, in the parkland areas of Saskatchewan Alberta. Pounds were used there as well. So there were multi-tribes that used these. Uh, the most prominent were certainly the Blackfoot, the Grovant. Uh, the Cree in Alberta and Saskatchewan, for pounds, they were considered the master pound makers. In fact, you've heard of Pound Makers Band and things like that. They, they were actually named after some of them. <laughs> but we have place names in Alberta. We have Jumping Pound Creek and things like that that were named because as Europeans arrived, they saw people still doing these activities or at least taking them there and say, this is where we used to drive buffalo over a cliff or this is where we drove buffalo into a wooden corral. And in many cases, you could literally see the remains of piles of bones on the ground from the last of the buffalo hunts. So they were a common thing among many plains groups. For Southern Alberta, we believe that the great majority of the use in more recent years was by the Blackfoot. And I say more recent years in an archeological sense, you know, thousands. But if you want to go back five, six, 7,000 years and say to me, you know, Jack, whose arrowheads are those? Or I can't put a name on that. And we know tribal groups were mobile and they, um, they occasionally had, uh, you know, they pushed out a different group and occupied a new territory or they were pushed out. Other groups came in or people just moved because the resources had played out in one area and a different group comes in later once you get far enough back in time it becomes very very hard to say who the who the people were
0: okay huh now um head smashed in is in southwestern alberta not far from fort mcleod it's in the rolling part of the foothills of the rocky mountains or is it right away from the foothills it's on the plains. Um, it's actually it's on a set of hills, but they are not.
1: They're often confused to be foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and they are not. As you're approaching them, if you were driving westward from the from Fort McLeod or Lethbridge or any Calgary, it looks for all the world like these are a set of foothills. It's a rolling green, beautiful, verdant set of hills that go for about a hundred kilometers north south and maybe twenty kilometers east west. Uh, and they're on a bit of an angle, much like the Rockies. They actually tip in the same direction, uh, and they're sandstone cord. Uh, hills that are, that are, they have these escarpments every now and then, uh, beautiful creeks that flow through them. They are a separate set of hills called the porcupine hills. They're no relation to the Rocky Mountains. They're no relation to the foothills of the Rockies. They are, I won't get too technical here, it's not a huge part of the story, but they are what's called an erosional an erosional remnant, meaning at one point, all the land around there was of that same height as the the bedrock you see now. When you drive up to Head Smash in and you see that sandstone bedrock cliff facing out towards you well everywhere where you are you're driving and all the area past you was all once at that had that same amount of sandstone it's just so the earth was all much higher in that area that is an erosional remnant everything else was worn down around it meaning it was probably a little bit harder sandstone a little more iron content or something there's actually a lot of red in the sandstone which is iron that's exposed on the cliff and i'll just tie that into the story here in that I ran an excavation at the site for quite a few years outside. We did that on a walking top path on purpose. So, so, of course, people could stop and say, oh, God, you guys are digging. What are you finding? You know, is that bone? Is that wood? Is Have you got an arrowhead today or whatever? And we did that. So that was a real part of the interpretation of the site. And ma- many, many people would stop and say, Look at all that blood on the cliff. Isn't that amazing? And you almost didn't want to tell them that's actually iron that's just oxidized and become red. You know, so the porcupine hills have a fair bit of iron in them, and it gives it a nice reddish color sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember. <clears throat> I remember reading that in the in the in the book. Now the the this <clears throat> the story of the name head smashed into that that's kind of an interesting one. Um, maybe just just paint that, that little story right now.
1: Most people assume that it means
0: that um, the
1: bison got their head smashed and, of course, they fell over these cliffs and there were people waiting there to kill them. Um, but the story, as told to a Calgary historian who recorded it, was actually a story of a young man who wanted to participate in the hunt, but he was too young and his parents told him he could not. And so he said, I will go hide under a ledge along the cliff so that I can at least witness the animals pouring over the cliff as the event proceeded. So he did that. And then um, it happened to be a, a very productive kill that day. A great number of animals were driven over the cliff and the bodies below kept piling higher and higher. And of course, they land on top of each other and they do start to make a mound a mass at some point. And that's what happened. And these bodies backed up to the point where he was then pinned in this little cavern that he had hidden in. He was pinned against that wall by, by dead animals that had fallen. And when the men and women went to do the butchering and pulled all the animals away, he was found with his head smashed in. Mm -hmm. That's the story.
0: Yeah. I don't know if it's true or not, but you know, it's a good story. (laughs) Now you talked about how in your book, how the name stuck for the site. And then you were told that was the wrong site where that story That's right. took place. That's
1: right. And it was and the funny thing was it was virtually universal among the Blackfoot elders that I got to know. And they never they never got tired of sort of making a joke out of it and kind of sticking it to me a little <laughs> bit. You know, we'd be sitting around, uh this was all very friendly. And I was, you know, well into a long project that everybody was Benefiting from and I think in favor of, and these are people who say, oh, "We just want you to know, no, you got it wrong. You know, you got that title wrong, don't you?" Know that, and I say, "Yeah, yeah, I know." Okay, and I'd always ask them, "So, where's the real head smashed in?" And they go, "Oh, geez, you know." And then they tell me it's down the road, closer to Willow Creek, and there are jumps down by Willow Creek, and it may well have been one of those uh, where that story was told. There is a an ancient map by the, one of the earliest explorers who came through Alberta who wrote, uh, well, he, he, he had a, a native person essentially draw him a map and put names on it. And one of the names, and, and of course, it's all very rough now. We're looking at it, it's, how do you pick out Fort McLeod or something like that on, these are little squiggly lines meant to represent streams and mountains and so on. But there is a dot in what is clearly southwestern Alberta that says where they got their heads smashed in the mud. And that sounds like a story of the bison getting their heads smashed in the mud. Yeah. But it's obviously somewhere—it's all, somewhere all of this is related, right? You know. Huh. So when I would ask them, well, what did you call this jump? I'd ask the elders. Um, after you know they had their fun telling me how we got it wrong, they would say, "Oh, we always just called it the buffalo jump." <laughs> and I always thought, well, that if this is the mother of all jumps, then that probably
0: as good a name as any. Yeah, <laughs> that's a funny story. <laughs> now the the bison itself um, the story you tell of the animal um, it, in fact you 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 call the their the bison herds in the plains the walking supermarkets mm-hmm. and you even said yeah it's a cli- it's a cliche but it it was true right like it was these huge herds of bison are are what allowed people to live on what was a what was a pretty hospitable area of the continent
1: Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, it's interesting that even archaeologists who you would think would be a little better tuned with what Native people were capable of doing and what environments they could live in. As recently as the 1940s uh, and maybe into the early 50s, there were some Plains archaeologists, you know, PhD, uh, holding positions in departments across North America, who argued nobody lived on the plains for thousands of years nobody that it was just too inhospitable there was nothing you couldn't make a living out there now remember these are people in the in the modern world looking at a plains that there's no bison herds there now uh and no not you know there's some antelope but not great numbers and stuff so they didn't see the plains in the sense in the way that that the native hunters did but nonetheless uh that's not giving native people much credit, I mean they lived in they've lived in deserts all over the world, eking out a living on things we'd say you can't possibly live here, and yet they do um look at Inuit people. I mean, how many of us could survive in the high Arctic <laughs> with not one shred of vegetable material and well except for you know caribou caribou or a
0: third to half the year is darkness, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: so i mean, never I mean if there's a lesson here is never sell short what humans are capable of doing <laughs> right and they lived in a pretty inhospitable region as you say uh, a, a winter in a teepee is got to be a challenge you know it's got to be I mean they had liners for the teepee so they make them a little bit more it's like a double wall you put up the second wall in winter because you're not going to move as often right And so that you can put that up and you have a double wall that creates that insulating air layer between the two layers of the teepee. Uh, It also helps funnel um, cold air out the top. And you have, obviously you have fire going all the time. Well, it means you got to have, how much wood you got to have? You know, if you're going to burn wood in a teepee for months and months before you hopefully don't have to move again. And there's a camp of 20, 25 teepees or something. So you have to camp, very strategically to have enough wood and then be able to chop that wood and you don't have any steel tools you have stone tools and that's it and you got to drag it and you got to you don't have any horses you know they went 12 15 years without horses and then europeans brought them back from from uh europe right in their boats and then people acquired horses again but all this time in case some of your listeners might still be thinking of the sort of the classic image of the Plains Indians, this horse mounted proud warrior riding with flowing headdress and a musket in their hands or something like that. And uh, that image was real and it existed, but it existed for about 100, 150 years after Europeans arrived in the West, brought horses, brought guns. We got the equestrian, the great equestrian Plains Indians, but we went. 12, 14,000 years without that and people need to remember you're always on foot you're dragging all your possessions all your belongings you never had guns you never had horses and so living in a winter in southern alberta southern saskatchewan northern montana yeah this is tough stuff and obviously people didn't always make it you know yeah
0: yeah now one of the um the interesting facts that you laid out with um The bison being like you know the sustenance the source of sustenance that sustained the people is is it's it it was the fat and the grease that was the primary target of the animals where most of the calories were
1: yeah, I think this is again something we would not understand had did we not read more of the literature and especially the literature of the early explorers um let me just back up a bit because you asked me about the sort of walking supermarket and i kind of got <laughs> diverted from that but let me just say that it was true that the bison not the, i don't know if it would be safe to say you could not have lived on the plains without them because again i feel maybe we're selling them short you know there's elk there's moose there's deer there's grizzly bears and black bears and fish in the rivers and things like that so i'm i'm not sure they couldn't have done it but man the fact that bison were there sure led them to exploit that animal in every single way you could. And we certainly get the impression now, looking back, that it was the absolute focus of life. You know, it was, um, it was the touchstone that everybody reached out for and said, this is what gives us life, this is what gives us our power, and we need bison to survive. And there's some great, great quotes from First Nations people themselves. I don't have them all committed to memory, but they just talk about the absolute importance of bison and how critical it was in their spiritual world as well, of course. Um, And then of the bison itself, of course, there's many components. There's bones, there's skin, there's tendon, there's fat, there's grease in the bones, there's tons and tons of meat, and all of these things were used. All of them were important. Um... They did, in fact, use everything, you know, all, every single part of the animal from the tail, which was used to swat flies and to flick water on hot rocks inside a sweat lodge, uh, an expunger, I believe that's called. Uh, and almost every bone could and did have a use of some kind. Obviously, some are thrown away, because otherwise there'd be no bones at an archaeological site, right? Uh, you don't need every bone all the time, all the different bones of the toes and the feet and things like that. But every now and then, like at Head In, one time, wasn't me, it was a colleague of mine, found bones that had been painted red with the red sacred paint of the pagan people. Now, why do you do that? Why do you paint a toe bone? with red circles around it. You know, we have no idea, but you know, it meant something to somebody at some point in time. Wow. Uh, It was, it was special. Something
0: special happened there. Absolutely.
1: And so of the different resources available in the body, we tend to think of meat as what everybody wants, you know? Yeah.
0: I mean, it's how kind of the, the modern, um, hunting culture in North America, um, you know, of, we talk about organic meat, um, ethically sourced meat, if you're hunting for yourself. Right. And, uh, Um, you know it's interesting because you know on animals on fatty animals especially the ungulates that have the tallow fats like we we carve that away you know Um, it doesn't it it can lead to meat spoilage in your freezer it's just it's not palatable and um, there's a an indigenous hunter, um, from coastal British Columbia that I follow on social media. And he harvested a mountain goat earlier this year, um, very heavy and fat, and he rendered it down, processed it in, and had it in jars. And he talked about like how important that was as part of the harvest of that animal. Cause like he just literally ate it, mm. um, you know, and loved the tallow thing in his mouth. And it was just, it, it was different because we always think about meat, but here the emphasis in, in your book was about <clears throat> about the high-calorie content of the fat and the greases.
1: And that is- all has to do with survival. Uh, we now know through modern science that your body needs a fair amount of fat to survive, and you cannot survive on simply a lean diet forever. You will, um, your organs will start to fail and 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 not function properly. Fat is in every single thing in you, and we just tend not to think of that. Mm -hmm. Fat's in your eyeballs and your nose and your mouth and and everywhere else, and you need it to survive. Uh, But we get it from so many sources that we're not even aware of from, you know, everybody knows a donut has a lot of fat, but you maybe didn't think a slice of bread does, but it does. And your cereal and your milk and your sandwich or whatever you're having, all of these things that we make today are generally fairly high in fat. You don't go need. You don't need to go have, you know, a handful of fat from a jar or something to stay alive today. You might do it because you enjoy it, but not not as a matter of life and death. But back in the days of the original hunting cultures, they did, in fact, need fat to survive. To survive. It's interesting what you were saying about, you know, our modern hunting, hunting society today tends to think in terms of meat as the, the thing you're after. So you're looking for like a big animal with a lot of meat on it. And, of course, the f- earliest Europeans who came to Western North America and first saw the the great vast bison herds here, uh, these were hunters. You know, all of them had guns. There's not a single one that didn't have guns. You had to because basically you couldn't carry that much food. These are people coming from England, from Scotland, from France. And some of them were explorers. Some of them were missionaries. Many of them were in the fur trade. Uh, but as they traversed the plains, almost always in the company of native groups because otherwise... They wouldn't know where they were going or how to survive. Uh, the natives were showing them, you know, this is uh, this is a good bison. This is a this is a lean animal, and the, often the very first time they hunted, they shot the biggest animal they could, because that's the background they were coming from. The big bulls. Yeah, the, the big, big bulls. Old bulls. These are like are, you know, sort of wealthy Europeans coming for sport to the plains of North America and they're going out with say the the Cree or the Shoshone or somebody and they shoot the biggest boulder is and then all the natives turn and laugh at them and he goes you just shot the most useless animal you could possibly kill it's going to taste rank the meat's going to be lousy it's going to be hard and tough and grizzly and there's not going to be a shred of fat on there and they laugh and then of course the guy tries to retain his pride and he goes over and butchers this thing and realizes they're alright and and then they start shooting cows at things, and everybody says, whoa, this is where the fat is, you know? Yep. Yep. Many plains explorers talk about nearly, nearly perishing as they move across the plains because they simply are not getting enough fat in their diet. Yep. And one really compelling story by David Thompson and his group, I believe they were coming back from British Columbia over the Rocky Mountains, heading towards Alberta. They hadn't quite gotten here yet. They're in the heart of the Rockies. They're really hard up for food. You just don't see those great herds of course in the Rockies and you see one deer or one elk or something, so they're they're really starving, and they killed I believe it was a moose, uh and he in his in his journal he says, The meat was so lean that my men were just starving while they ate it. They stayed up eating all night, throwing up and eating more and throwing up and he said, We just couldn't stop eating, but we we're getting nothing from it And about a day or so later he there's a beautiful little sentence where they they finally hit the edge of the foothills and they walked literally down into the plains. And he said, all my men are rejoicing today. The great bounty of the plains has opened up in front of us. Mm-hmm. Something to that effect, meaning we know we're going to be okay now because we're back in the land of plenty.
0: Yep, the land of the bison. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> they the indigenous hunters had to become very, very good at understanding which animals you know, had the fat and it's different at different times of the years for the cows and before birth and after birth and fall versus winter and all that. And, and you pose this very interesting question, which I'd like you to answer here. And, and it was which animals and what time of the year, meaning which, which animals of the bison and at what time of the year was optimal for driving herds over the cliff. And
1: this is knowledge that we've gained now through a number of what, you know, wildlife studies of, of different animals because there aren't that many bison you can just kill and dissect like you can say caribou or deer. So a lot of this is um, gleaned from other disciplines, but we know the basic principles are the same, especially for northern temperate northern animals. And that is there's a, a, a very predictable cycle of fat gain and loss in both males and female bison over the course of a year. and it varies with age a little bit. But varies by sex, especially. And that turns out to be probably the most significant factor. So, just in a nutshell, I'll keep this short. The the females are the, first of all, they're the fatter of the two animals. And that's an important point. Of the two sexes.
0: Fatter than. Yeah, sorry. (coughs) Fatter fatter of the two sexes. And when I say that. Percent body fat, right? Because the males are bigger. Right. But the females have a higher percent body fat. They exactly. also have a
1: higher weight of body fat. That's, okay. the, that's the rather staggering thing. You would think, here's a, okay, first let's say bison are sexually dimorphic, which most large game animals are, meaning the males are considerably bigger than the females when they're adults. And in the case of bison, it can be 30, 40%. So a typical male bull might weigh 900 to 1,000 kilograms. A typical cow might weigh 6, 700 kilograms, something like that. 30, 40% difference. So you would think a 6 or 700 pound animal, is certainly going to have less fat by weight on it than a 900 pound animal 900 kilogram animal but in fact it's not true the absolute weight of fat is more and the per body percentage is more okay. in cows yeah. they are just that much fatter than males and that's a huge factor in why a hunter who's interested in fat is likely going to choose a female but as i said it changes over the cycles of the year uh of the seasons so in a nutshell uh starting with the summer females are generally uh, most females have calved in the spring that the tendency is for the majority of the herd to calve there'll be about a quarter of them that don't so three quarters let's say are calving now they're feeding their animals this is a very bad time to kill cows because they're very lean first of all they used a lot of body fat to produce the fetus in the first place and now they're using a huge amount of body fat to produce good quality milk to feed th- this calf so they are very poor condition at that time as, the, as you get into the early fall, they start weaning the calf. And also, um, they've now also had the benefit of grazing three, four, five months on on good quality graze following you know, from spring onward. So they are building up their own resources. The calf is being weaned, and the females start to put on weight now. And they put on high quality fat from high quality feed. So really from fall on, all through winter and spring, the animals the, the cows are in, in good shape even if they get pregnant and they're nurturing a fetus that takes very little resources until the very end and then it then it starts to build up so if we look at the big picture for for females they're very poor condition in midsummer if they're suckling than they usually are and then they get in much better condition through the spring uh, or sorry through fall winter and then into the spring at the first part of it and then they start to go downhill a little bit again as they're getting their calving time. Now, bulls have a very different tendency. Uh, Starting in the summer, they are gaining fat. They have none of this reproductive stuff going on. They're not tending any females. They're not doing anything with the calves. They just eat, and they get big, and they want to get big because the bigger you are, the more impressive you look when it comes time to stake your claim for a harem of females. You want to be the biggest show in town. So they're eating like crazy, and this lasts up until about August when the rut starts. Now, once the rut starts to kick in, the mating season, the males, if you're over the age of four, let's say, that's that's an adult. The younger ones, they tend not to participate so much. So if you're over four, uh, now suddenly eating isn't the top priority. Staking out females as your turf is the top priority. And this is what they try to do. They literally will just herd them into little groups, nuzzle them, stand by them. And it's, you know, they've been observed. We had lots of opportunity to observe them. They will not eat for days at a time. They will not sleep for days at a time. They will just, because they're obsessed with taking care of those females. And of course, looking for the chance to mate when that opportunity comes. So what happens is they lose everything. <laughs> they just crash, but they don't care because it's more important to mate, right? Right. So they lose fat, they also lose muscle tissue, they lose bone, they lose hide. I mean, the sheer weight of the animal goes down, and if you were to actually dissect every part, you would see a decline in every single kind of tissue. Even bone is lost, even hide is lost, but you know, in very minor amounts. It's Fat is the main thing, and they can lose almost all their fat. They can go almost to zero. Uh, not in the marrow and the bones and stuff but they can really lose a lot then okay so then the mating happens in the early fall late september or sorry late august september is the mating season the the bulls are now out of that now they go back to grazing they start getting to be in better condition and they improve all through the fall and into early winter by winter you know, the the quality of graze has dropped off dramatically. The ability to get at it has dropped off with snow cover and frozen ground and so on. And just being out there grazing on the plains takes a lot of energy. And so sometimes they just hold up in the sides of hills and things like that and just rest, you know, just try and conserve body body mass and body heat so uh, males are good in the middle of the summer terrible in the late summer early fall and then slowly get better again all through the winter and spring because they were so bad when i say get better remember we're talking about starting from a really bad spot so they're getting better until the spring again so what i did was like i looked at all the hunting patterns for dozens and dozens of plains hunters who made journals and records and they said i killed a magnificent bull today well, when was that? You know, so I made a note of it. And, the, and somebody said, I killed five fat cows today, ignored all the bulls. And I went through all those records and I made a chart and I found out that by far uh, almost the entire year was the killing of female bison, except uh, May, June, July which fits almost exactly with the time where the females crash because they have given birth in April usually, sometimes in May. They're now breastfeeding. They're um, losing all their fat uh, through their milk, and they become extremely uh, unattractive as a target for hunters, and the males suddenly surge. So there is a spike in the hunting of males in June and July and a, a real absence of hunting of females, and then, boom, females are back on top again. So really... 10 months out of the year, maybe 9 to 10 months, uh, females are by far the preferred target of hunters, and for a very short time in summer, uh, males are preferred. And you can find quotes in all the literature to support this. A guy might be riding along and shoots a cow, and he says, she was with calf today. Uh, I shouldn't have killed her. She had no body fat once I opened her up. And these are people who know that, you know, but mm-hmm. sometimes they just they shoot and then find out later, you know.
0: Right. So is there... Is there evidence from the site itself in your work to to indicate the season of year that, that's that a, they it, targeted to 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 drive bison?
1: You know, that's a, an area where there's been great progress in archaeology in about the last 20 years or so. Uh, prior to that, you know, finding bone bones are bones sort of, <laughs> to say, well, this is a four-year-old male or a seven-year-old female. This is kind of wish list archaeology that... <laughs> Uh, We're getting closer to it and we're getting, I think a lot of people are now comfortable saying, I think I can separate males from females. And the, the single reason being that the males are so much bigger. So if you do a series of sophisticated measurements on a bunch of different bones, you can often say that's clearly a male, that's clearly a female. The problem we have, of course, is that males from one to four or five years old are not going to have the same great big bones that the adults are. Their bones might be very similar to a cow that's fully grown. Meanwhile, cow young bones might look like anything. So, uh, this is not 100% by any means. What we can tell you in general is that uh, most of the buffalo jumps, and I won't single out head smashing, its use is more complicated because it went on for 6,000 years. Most of the buffalo jumps show a strong pattern of use in the fall months. And often only in the fall months, and then a strong selection from the kill that you've the kill you've made, the strong selection of the female carcasses for for butchering and processing. The reason for the fall, we believe, is that you are gearing up to get you through the winter. That's why you run a hundred animals over a cliff, you have an enormous amount of fat, meat, hide, bones, all the things you're gonna need. And this is just the time to put it away and have it as a stockpile to help get you through those winter months. When, you know, there's going to be days where it's minus 35 and it's a howling wind and a driving horizontal blizzard and your teepee is barely standing and you've got rocks all over the place trying to hold it down. You're not going hunting, right? Yeah, you are just want
0: to hunker down and make, make her through the winter and have, have food. And-,
1: and have some dried bison meat, some pemmican, some, dr- some jerky that you've made from that mass kill. Right? Now you still go out and hunt if it's a decent day. Hunters, you know, hunters have that in their blood. They they will tell you, we always go hunting if you possibly can. But they'll stay fairly near the campsite, and maybe there's a deer or moose wandering by. Maybe there's a bison, and if they can bring home fresh meat, everybody rejoices, right? But it's in case you can't, these great communal hunts were that insurance against those really bad times where you just you have no options and so that's why they process so much meat and they would haul this stuff away to their winter camps and so fall is a key time it's not the only time Uh, we find a, a lot of communal hunts these great communal pounds and jumps also took place in the spring not too much in well there's some winter ones as well um and the spring ones might have been... A, uh, now, a lot of the animals aren't in great shape in the spring. You know, cows, we know, are just st- are starting to get really poor. Males have been improving through winter, but they're not anywhere near as good as they're going to be in the, in the summer. So why are you doing this? Why, uh, why a mass kill in the spring? One suggestion is that they're going after the hides because, remember, they need hides for teepees. These people... They had no other dwelling. And teepees take from anywhere on a small size, from say 10 or 12 to 15 or 18 hides, and they wear out every two or three years. You got to make a new one. And if you have hundreds of people in the, in hundreds of teepees and uh, all these different clans of Blackfoot scattered around, you need a lot of hides. You go
0: through them. And and you you explained that the different types of year, the hides are thicker. <clears throat> so they wanted thinner ones for certain uses and thicker ones for certain uses, which then said you had to be harvesting for hides also at different times of the year. Yeah, that's
1: a really good point to bring up because again, it helps people understand that how much animals change throughout a season. They just see, oh yeah, it got thinner because it lost its fat over winter. Now it's getting fat again. But actually the hide might've gone from, well, on a bison, it could be a centimeter- a centimeter and a half almost 2 centimeters at its absolute thickest which is in the fall and of course it varies over the body a little bit too but then they they literally they literally consume their hide you know when i say they lose everything they're going through such a rough winter their bones are being absorbed some of it into their body the uh, marrow the the tendon the fat the meat but also the hide is literally shrinking from being some of its energy being absorbed to keep that that animal alive so by spring that same animal that had a two centimeter thick hide maybe now has one centimeter thick hide and other animals obviously vary accordingly well if you want to hide to make a teepee cover of a two centimeter thick bison hide is virtually unworkable you can make a, a platform you know that you could stand on and do something on you could um you could have the floor of a teepee or something like that, but you can't make any clothing out of it. You can't bend it. You can't fold it. You can't sew it, and and to try and thin it, which you could, you can do. All hides can be thin, is an enormous amount of work. Nobody wants to do this. Yeah, I mean, because you think to,
0: about it, two centimeters is it would be like a, a three-quarter inch piece of plywood, right? Like trying to. And you want it so down to about a quarter Overlap it and so through those and, two right, layers.
1: You <laughs> got to bend it and sew
0: it and okay. um, tan it and all that. So, so that, that might be a main, a main factor for spring hunts would That's be right. with the thinner hides. Okay. That's right. Okay. Wow. That's so fascinating. I mean, you know, as a modern hunter, and I kind of look at what you just, you know, talked about, like, you know, the fall, which is when, what, when we hunt. Um, you're storing up for the winter because, you know, we're not that far removed from this I believe Um, you know as humans we're still going through those cycles um, of the seasons is the fall we hunt and we are driven to create those stores Um, even if it's gardening like it's it's canning it's 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 getting those provisions you know stored up because winter is the time where you nest and then you know you just you ride winter out um, but, but you know, it's, it's funny cause you can, you know, you have the meat in the freezer, you're still comfortable. And it's sort of like, well, where are you going this weekend? And well, I'm going out hunting and it's like, well, the freezer's full cause you got a moose in September. And it's like, yes, but it's like, I still want to go hunting cause it's right. hunting season. Right. So you're right. still, you're still driven to go out there to, you know, you know, oh, I might get a and deer, because, or find a couple grouse. Right.
1: Or, or, and because if you do happen to, uh, let's say you happen to get lucky and get an animal, um, now we're talking modern times, of course, we're not wasteful. Like, you know, we we wouldn't kill an animal and just take a couple of steaks and go home. Yeah. Um, but if you were living on the plains a thousand years ago and you had all this dried food that will keep you alive, but out on the prairies, there's something fresh today. You're going to kill that. And you're going to say, hey, everybody, come here. Let's get some fresh food. Now, how much of it you get is, is a matter of how long the weather holds and, and what you can carry home. But the idea is. It's a change, a change in diet. You've got some. Let's have fresh roast tonight, and we don't have to have pemmican again tonight. <laughs> exactly. So um, you are looking for, you know, just a variation in the diet.
0: Yeah. Now let's um, let's let's get into getting you to explain us um, of the kill of you know the the killing of huge herds of bison. Like walk us through that process. I mean, they they had to somebody had to find these herds on you know, the planes somehow get them moving and then eventually get them, you know, to commit and then the people to process, you know, what they harvested, like, walk yeah. walk. through It's us, an amazing story, walk really. Walk through that. Just even
1: hear you saying it, you know. Yeah. I think, wow, it's just one of the, I think it's one of the great stories on Earth, really, that people were able to do that. It's the biggest land mammal in North America, right? And, it could easily
0: kill you. What did you say in your book that this represented the the largest like harvesting of wild animals in the, in the world. Like what well, well, was, I think even
1: more, i phrase it differently. And I think it's more dramatic. What I said was, It's the largest food gathering operation ever devised by human beings. That's right. Uh, That's right. And you think about that. We go back four million years now on the planet, right? From little African things that didn't look much like us, but they were harvest. They were gathering various foods and things like that. And then all the way up to all the different cultures we've known about. um, I mean, you can once you get into modern agriculture, and you you can have a bunch of you know a bunch of harvesting machines out there gathering. A million tons of food in a day or something yeah. if you got enough land to do that, but in terms of traditional acquisitions of food, whether any kind of hunting or even growing of of food anywhere on earth, nowhere else did any did human beings obtain as much food at any one moment as they did at a buffalo jump, yeah, you know if they drove a hundred animals over a cliff, which I think was probably about an average for reasons I 'll get to in a minute, uh, I worked that out that that's about sixty thousand kilograms. Of food at the bottom of the cliff waiting for you. It's equivalent to about 26 pickup trucks. I had to put it in something the re- readers could think about, you know.
0: Or, or two Olympic-sized swimming pools. Yeah, Is that, that, that the- kind <laughs> of thing.
1: You need an analogy of some kind. So uh, then I looked at other things that were, I looked at um, bowhead whales and, and, of course, mammoth and mastodon and Elephants, and and I I said, okay, what if they killed several elephants? You know, that nothing came close to 60,000 kilograms. So my argument is um, the buffalo jump is the single largest food gathering event in a single moment that any human being's ever devised. I thought caribou might rival it because, you know, they kill lots of caribou at one time. They'll kill hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, at river crossings all in a day or something like that. But caribou don't weigh very much, you know, when you work it all out, you don't come to 60,000 kilograms very easily with caribou. So really, bison seem to be, I think these communal hunts are, are, are internationally noteworthy for that very reason, you know, that nowhere else did anybody obtain as much food in a moment as these people did with bison. Using what I think most people around the world would say, God, that was just primitive. You know, they used the word primitive hunting. You know, but but it wasn't. It was incredibly sophisticated.
0: sophisticated.
1: And so, if you like, I'll tell you about that now. Absolutely. How would they do that? Uh, I I have to try and shorten the story, of course, because it's a long, complicated event. But you're right. You're starting off. You have to first find these animals, and the beauty of head smashed in as only one of many jumps is that. The area, behind, when I say behind it, I mean to the west. And behind it meaning the area from which the animals would would obviously have been gathered, had to be gathered, because then they drive them towards the cliff. And the cliff, in this case, faces east, and the gathering basin, as they rounded where they rounded them up, faces to the west. So that's the area we, we know they would have had to have gone to, to look for animals. And once they find them, to then start doing the very... Gentle but deliberate things that they did in order to coerce these animals into the very precise position that they need them to be in to get them into eventually to get them to the kill site now what they did was they would go out and a number of people who were trained in this kind of work uh, would go out and look for animals they would find little you know you don't find often large groups so you find 10 over here and 20 here and you can start moving them so you, you accumulate them uh, into a larger group and there's ways to do that that these people had mastered and uh, again it, to, to me it just boggles my mind when i read some of these stories one of their favorite tricks was to imitate other animals and so they would put on the skin for example of a, an antelope or a wolf uh, or a coyote, or a number of other animals of about human size that they could get into, or the
0: bison calf.
1: A bison calf yeah, yeah. was another one. Yeah, uh, they would imit- They would get into these skins, uh, which to us, most of us, of course, would be, uh, we'd be hopeless at this, right? But to then try and actually imitate the animal itself, the way it moved, the the sway, the 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 number of steps it takes per, you know, couple meters or so, and how it how it stops every now and then, lifts its head or puts its head down, and, of course, um, the sounds it makes. And they had mastered all of this, these people. They had mastered all of that. They could perfectly imitate these animals. And there's a couple, several quotations in the literature I found, one for, one for antelope, one for bison, where the hunters who were there said, had I not seen that hunter put on that outfit and wander out towards the herd, I would have shot him. You know, I would have shot him thinking he was one of the very animal itself. So they use those tricks, and they would. Uh, a good example is the one where they use the bison calf to split disguise, and then they would they would be within sight of a herd. And of course, this is a herd that's going to look at a calf, and say, "Well, what's the calf doing over there?" You know, they're protective animals. They're they're herd animals. That's where they got their name. And they're going That's not right. That calf is not supposed to be over there. It's supposed to be with us. They start moving towards it, right? And the calf is just wandering slowly away. This is not. We're not talking a stampede. We're not talking hell bent for leather, dust, and all that. At this point, the calf is wandering away. It's doing the sound, eh, eh, you know, a bleating sound that they know means I can't find my mother. Right? The calf has a sound. They all do, and they all have a certain smell and all that. And now they're hearing the sound and they're looking around, saying, "Who's mother? Who's the mother of this calf? Why aren't you taking care of that?" You know. And but the, the important point is, they're going to follow it because this calf is not behaving properly. It's moving away and it's making a sound. And we, as a group, we need to take care of this animal because they are under, you know, it's like those YouTube videos you watch of the African Serengeti. The, t- the plains was teeming with animals and a lot of them are predators to each other at various times. And for example, many of the Europeans re- recount how once you, g- you knew when you were getting close to bison herds, because you start seeing wolves. wolves all over the place because they know this is there's going to be food tonight somewhere you know if we just be patient and do our thing and and the animals the bison know if we do everything right they're not going to eat tonight you know if we you know it's like the hyenas and all that at those watering holes and and the serengeti everybody knows there are rules and the rules uh if you stay within your rules, you're probably going to be okay. Now, this calf has broken the rules, and it's gone off by itself, and it's walking away. And they go, that's not good, because they know wolves are around, and they know that this calf is going to get picked off. So they're catching, trying to catch up to it now. Uh, but underneath is an is a intelligent, smart hunter who's doing everything he can to not let them catch up, but to keep them moving. And, of course, the way he's moving is towards the cliff right he's he's leading them from this gathering basin towards the cliff now what i haven't described so far is that almost all buffalo jumps had these lines of stones that were laid out uh, usually in a v-shaped fashion with the wide end of course out into the gathering basin where it's wide enough to get the herds into the opening mouth of it and then the narrow end is pointed and focused at the actual jump itself and the narrow end might only be 10, 15 meters across. And the wide end could be a kilometer or two from one end to the other. Again, giving you maximum room to get these animals in. The whole idea is it's like a funnel. It essentially compresses them into a smaller and smaller space as you move along. And what we need, what we know, again, from speaking with elders and from historic accounts, is that other hunters who were not involved in dry actually luring and driving the animals, other hunters would be lined up along these lanes of rocks and lying behind them usually with a hide over themselves to to mask themselves and th- their job is to prevent these animals from veering out of that funnel once they're in it and um, a good part of that might have just been quite calm you know this calf leading this herd the animals not running but walking towards this because right now they don't have any reason to run right they just see a calf moving away And they're walking, but they're walking into the mouth of the trap. They're walking into the jaws of this um, vice-shaped drive lane. It's a system, really, a drive lane system. And what um, I think what archaeologists have found fascinating in recent years is how we've realized that people engineered these landscapes. You know, You tend to think of, well, it's just a rock on the plains. Yeah, but then there's another one, and then there's another one, and then there's three in a row, and then there's a pile, and then it turns. And you stand there, and you go, well, why did it just turn? What was that all about? Um, and, and now with the use of drones and aerial photography and things like that, it's so much easier you to see these things and to appreciate and get the full picture of what they're doing. Uh, it's very hard when you're standing amongst them, sometimes to even see them, because they're, they're not huge stone structures. But to get the lay of the land now, you know, the aerial imagery we have at our disposal is just phenomenal. And now you can really start to put together, oh, I see, here's a ridge coming up, or here's a, a bit of a swale going down. What if the animals were here? What would they see? You're always asking, what do they see? And what it, what is it you need to protect them to make sure they don't get out of that vice that you put them in? And, and I think only really in the last 10 years or so, uh, a few archaeologists, especially in Alberta and Montana, have been really working on this idea of an engineered landscape and arguing that this makes them, uh, them. this puts the Plains uh, bison hunters in every bit the same kind of category of developed civilization status, if I can use that term, as As the agricultural and settled people that have tended to be ascribed kind of a higher level of living, Mm -hmm. not smarter, but just kind of, well, they've evolved more, they're settled, they're grazing crops, they build homes, they stay in one place, they have cities, like West Coast villages that you're familiar with but what if but these people engineered the land in a way that they showed every bit as much of a connection with the landscape and a fixing on a land that was their home as people who build houses and they built structures that were meant to last and be used over and over and over again and we're we're now thinking of these people as more like you know like we think of Europeans and like we think of agricultural peoples in North America that they had settled the landscape in very much the same way, and, and land managers, yeah, and animal managers too. Yes, and yeah, we'll get to that. So there's a group of people leading the animals along the drive lanes. There's uh, people alongside the lanes themselves to keep them from busting out. You have things like the bison calf. There was um, a there was a, a play on that that was even more impressive, if you could, you know, in, in my opinion, in that the the bison calf trick that they used. Uh, had another component where they sometimes then brought in a person disguised as a wolf. And that wolf would then pretend to be going after that calf. So this is exactly what nature would do, right? (laughs) Nature has calves wandering occasionally away from the herd, and usually when they do that, wolves get them. That's how how the world works. Or an old animal, or one with a broken leg, or perhaps a cow that's calving and gets stuck in one spot for a while and can't move, and boom, wolves are on them because they know that's our chance to feed not in the middle of a big herd with a lot of males with big horns and that can kill us and throw us in the air and all that but here's this calf wandering away and now a second hunter dressed as a disguised as a wolf starts kind of bothering that calf kind of working around it working near it and this calf is starting to get a little anxious about that the herd is getting more and more anxious now too and they might start moving quicker to catch up with this calf what does the calf do the calf starts to run calf starts to move more quickly now towards the cliff that is waiting for them and this is all of course very carefully choreographed choreographed so that it's happening within a set distance of the cliff they're not doing this for many kilometers away because it doesn't work Uh, one thing we're quite sure about with buffalo drives in both pounds and jumps is the actual stampede the The rush to the finish was probably quite short, like maybe a few hundred meters
0: or half a kilometer at most. So it was just this slow coercing and moving of the herd in that funnel. Right.
1: A very deliberate, very, um, I hate to use the word gentle, but um, uh, a slow and deliberate coercion of these animals to get them to go. Because one thing you don't want, you don't want them panicked. They're almost certainly not going to do what you want if they panic, right? If you've got them... Uh, Suddenly you startle them and they just, you know, they don't know what's going on and they just run and they're going to break through those drive lanes. They're going to run through people and stampede people and so on. And we know those things did happen. There's no such thing as, you know, perfection.
0: And I think you also talked about if, if if the panic stampede happened too early and they were running a distance that the bison had a tendency to line out and to get in a long line, which then run the danger that if the first couple animals went off the cliff that the rest of the herd actually had time to put the brakes on and start going left and right where if that panic was they were moving more like a mass the success of pushing all the animals over was was better
1: that's right yeah exactly described it really well and there's a couple of films that show that Um, like some NFB films from the early 30s and where they were still uh, in in what was called Buffalo Park in Alberta for a while before it was closed. Uh, There were some large herds out there, and you had cowboys out rounding up these animals, and there's some films of these things that kind of moving amoeba-like. It's it's kind of like watching birds. You think, how do they know they're all staying together? They all make the same turn. And you'll see them run in in literally a large group, almost an oval kind of thing. Uh, so it's kind of like they all know where they're going and they turn together but then as the films go on and you watch they become strung out over a distance because they're just not all of equal ability to run you've got fast animals slow animals old sick young cows bulls etc calves and so that line develops and the what you were getting at correctly there is as as a line you don't want that arriving at the cliff because the line means the first guy goes over, and then the second one, and then the third. Well, by now, the fourth or fifth what's going on here? <laughs> These people are disappearing in front of us. This is not good. And they start putting the brakes on. And what you want is a mass arriving at the cliff all at one time. Because that mass, like that oval running that in the early parts of the films that's what arrives at the cliff and they can only the leaders can see anything but behind them literally right on their tails is a hundred other animals stampeding full blast 40 50 kilometers an hour which bison can run and they literally push those leaders over so uh it was lewis and clark in their in their travels across western north america as far as i know the only ones who actually observed well they didn't observe that they mentioned that because they were told that they passed a big bison kill with a ton of um carcasses at the bottom now these were mostly bones at that point and they got into a discussion with the native component native people that were on their trip and the people explained how that worked and the key thing about it they said was you needed a big group together at the end Mm. because they literally push you so you could say in a sense bison jump is kind of poorly named it's a bison push a bison fall a stumble or something but uh they're not jumping really. They yeah. they're simply falling over a cliff.
0: So so the the wolf sort of harassing the calf was a little bit of where they were starting to amp up the the tension in the herd, like you said getting them moving a bit faster. Yes,
1: um certainly for that particular trick, but it's also important to remember that's just one of many tricks that they had and and other ones operated uh in different ways, but on, basically on the same principles. Uh, let me tell you one quick story. I like this one because it was—I had read a lot, uh, I'll be honest. <laughs> I had read a lot about buffalo jumps and how they work, and all the historic accounts I could ever find, every witness, every eyewitness, every per- person who wasn't an eyewitness but was told about them, and yet I also worked with a number of Blackfoot elders and collected stories whenever I could— and i was talking to one old blackfoot elder's long dead now his name was billy strikes with a gun and billy only spoke blackfoot so we were working through a translator and we were talking about the rounding up and moving buffalo and i was just trying i was looking for stories you know looking for stories to tell at the, at the head smashed inn center and um he said i'll tell you about how they did it in the winter and i said yeah i'd like to hear about that and he said um, they went around, first he said they'd rub their bodies all in sage to get rid of their human smell and rub their moccasins in sage. And they would go then collect bison robes. So this is the, the, the finished hide, it's all, it's fully tanned and it's soft and pliable. And they would collect a lot of these bison robes and they would go out onto the plains where the animals had been grazing recently and they would collect r- relatively frozen or very cold cow pies, you know, bison dung, chips basically and stack them. Now, they're they're not that heavy, you know, when they kind of dried out a little bit in winter. Um, they would stack them on these robes that they're dragging around. They had dogs with them, also pulling travois that they would also stack more of these on. They would just go get as many of these bison chips as they could. And um, then they would go back around again behind, I'll use that word behind the jump, to the west, to the mouth of the funnel, to the mouth of that V-shaped funnel of lines, uh, which you might not even see in wintertime, right? The Rocks may not even show up. But they know, of course, where they are. And what they do then is they start entering that funnel, pulling these hides with them as they go, and they're walking backwards. They're walking backwards so that as they go, they're dragging the hide over their own trail. They're masking their footprints. They're also masking their scent. And as they move along, uh, there this, this could be 10, 20 of these people doing this. As they move along, they reach down, and every now and then they flip out a chip right and so again if you were to have a drone back then and when this is all done be able to look at it what you would see is a a line of dark chips going for maybe a kilometer or two leading right to the cliff and bison know from previous experience this is one of our trails here's our chip you know the chips mark where they've gone before right so this is our trail so they happily run along that then the people come in and of course they surround them and they spook them and all that but there's no disguise and all that. It's it's a completely different setup, but the result, hopefully, for them is the same. But the, the, it just shows you, again, the knowledge they had of these animals and the sophisticated uh, understanding of all of their um, behavior, all of their biology that we know if we build a fake trail, they'll think it's a real trail. And we know that if we hide in a in a, a snow drift, they're going to walk along the blown part of that drift on a ridge because they don't like walking in deep snow. They're not like moose with long legs and well snow adapted. They've got short stubby legs that have a lot of hair on them. They don't w- move very well through deep snow. Well, they know that. They're not stupid. So they try not to go in deep snow. But when hunters are after them, they will intentionally lie in the you know on the leeward side of a of a ridge where the snow is blown deep and then spook these animals off into the you just rush the, the rush the ridge and they have to leave that ridge and they go down into deep snow well guess what hunters have snowshoes on and animals don't so yeah. there you go I mean it's just one trick after another but uh, I mean it, they amaze us now but if you think about it in a sense they really shouldn't because these people had coexisted with bison for fourteen thousand years. And you lived outside every single day of your life, from the day you were born to the day you died. You lived outside. And then not that bison were within viewing distance of your camp every day, but almost every day or certainly every week, somebody somewhere was coming into contact with herds of bison. And from the time you were even a toddler, you were being carried around near bison herds and being fed bison meat and probably seeing bison butchered and hearing stories of people saying, yes, uh, I turned them around this corner today and there was a great drive there and there was a deep snow drift. This is one we need to remember and come back to. You know, the, the accumulation of thousands, thousands of years of knowledge, that's why these people were able to do these things because they had so much background in knowing the complete story of everything about a bison.
0: I mean, it's one thing to outsmart like an individual animal, but hundreds of them required. A much more sophisticated level of yeah it requires of, knowledge of sort of mass behavior because even like you said within a herd there's there's slower and older and faster and you know and that there's smarter and more cautious and more suspicious and less suspicious animals with like in a large herd and mm-hmm. you have to you know out, outwit or coerce all those different personalities within that herd to make this happen it's 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 absolutely fascinating
1: yeah i think it's a really um, i think it's a really impressive story for north america and I'm, I'm i'm pleased that i gave it some greater play you know with a book and there's of course an interpretive center now at a at a World Heritage site that is open almost 365 days a year that people can go and visit, and several million people have. I mean, it's got. It's been open th- over 30 years now, and it's got uh, over 2 million visitors. Yep. So I think I'm pretty proud of that. 2 million people know the story of the jump now, or at least good parts of it, that didn't know it before those doors opened and Absolutely. before we put a few, little bit of money into that and developed Absolutely. it so that you can drive there from anywhere in North America and fly in from anywhere
0: in the world. Yeah. And, uh it's well let's let's pick up uh, back on the on the drive so like walk us through that last little bit where they they well the
1: last little bit would have been pretty exciting i think i wrote in my book that every archaeologist would like to have a time machine you know (laughs) go back and go back and be somewhere whether it's at stonehenge when they're putting the last rock up or uh you know up in the slopes of rome or something like that but I mean, if I could go back in time, I'd like to kind of be at a safe distance away from a, a buffalo jump just as the animals were getting to the cliff. <laughs> and uh, I think I said in the book, let it be a, a large herd that day because it's probably my one shot at going back in time. But that would have been an incredible moment. The, uh, what we do know from um, eyewitness accounts is that the ground literally shook for some distance around. So if you were a kilometer away, you were feeling this up through your femurs coming, this rumbling and rattling of the ground, it literally shook because the hooves of animals that are weighing a 1,000 kilograms, 800 kilograms, and 100 of them or more and each one with four legs slamming into the earth as they're now starting to run towards that cliff. They are being panicked from the sides, from those men and women who have stood up and they're waving robes and they're by those stone drive lanes. Meanwhile, the other people have filled in behind them to make sure they can't turn around. The people who were leading them have, at this point, jumped for safety through the drive lanes. They they kind of open up a little wall and they'll jump out. And you remember, again, this didn't all go right. you know. There were times where things failed and I'm sure people got trampled to death. But most of the time it worked because we find huge bone beds at the base of these cliffs. So we know it worked. So the the animals are stampeding now the last few hundred meters maybe before the, the cliff. Everybody's on the side and screaming. The men and women are in a narrowing f- funnel of these rock lines. We think they were mostly holding robes, that is bison robes. And again, hold them with the hair side out because that's the dark side, right? And it makes it look impenetrable. It looks like a wall. And you wave it because, again, motion scares them. They don't like the sense of motion. And they don't know what it is. And they don't particularly want to go over and investigate it. So they're running straight. And your whole job is to keep them from veering up towards you or your neighbors. And they were obviously very good at it. They knew how to keep these animals in check. And they, they eventually get this mass to the, to the edge of the cliff. And as, as we said previously the uh, ideally you've got them there as a fairly large cohesive group not as a strung out line but if you manage to do that then you're pretty much assured these are going to go over the cliff that at that point there's almost nothing that it's like a train that's a runaway what what do you do to stop it you know the the leaders are going over and no if the if the next group tries to stop they're literally pushed by the ones behind them i once worked on a what was then called a film strip. <laughs> it was a little uh, series of images of, of uh, film that was shown uh, at the same time as a as a text was being um, played on a record. It is a very ancient technology, <laughs> but we needed an artist to do a bunch of drawings for us of what a buffalo jump might have looked like, and in one of them, the very one where they're getting to the edge and the animals are starting to pour over, I said to the artist, "Make it look like they're the ones at the front." Are actually putting their hooves down as if they're trying to break. Because why would you not? You know, I mean, what animal r- willingly runs over an obviously lethal cliff? Um, and so I have a couple of the animals at the edge trying to lean backwards and their front hooves are digging into the the dirt and the bedrock and it's almost like sparks are flying and they're going whoa bad idea guys but right behind them is this mass just this mass of brown wool coming at you and this fur and horns eyeballs and and because they're literally stacked up on top of each other Mm -hmm. and that's what made this thing work so they crashed over um imagine the sounds the bellowing the Howling of the as boom as they hit the yard, then they hit each other and knock the wind out of each other, and the bellowing of these wounded animals, broken legs, broken backs, broken necks, and then of course, you get the mound effect where some are now completely buried, and you won't hear them ever again. Uh, some are rolling to the sides and relatively unscathed, and might by the luck of the draw be the one or two that or probably more that jump up and can actually run around a little bit and there are always hunters there to make sure those guys didn't get away and that's an important part of the story Um, because I was often asked by people well when you've run 100 animals over the cliff you know if two or three survived why would you care you've got so much at your disposal and of course some people think of it as part of management of wildlife part of management of wildlife is you let these go because you don't need them right Mm -hmm. you have all you need
0: Take what only what you
1: need, right? Yeah, yeah, the kind of ecological, you know, view of the world that we only need. Well, let's see. Uh, oh, there's a, we're at a hundred now. We can stop. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You can't stop this train, right? That's for one thing. You literally could not stop the herd. So if there's hundred and fifty or two hundred, that's what you're going to get today. Uh, but once they're at the bottom some of them will in, in undoubtedly be alive and able to move away from the kill either slowly walking or running depending how badly they've been dazed and hurt and so on but I think this is a very important point every single known planes group all of them have been recorded as having the same belief and that is you had to kill them all you had to kill them all because the animal world to them is a, a sentient world I mean these are they have minds, they have souls, they're, they're just like people only they're not, they don't live in teepees and stuff. Yeah. But they think and, and watch and listen and breathe and they understand. So they now know the trick, right? Yeah. They've been through it. Yeah. They've seen the guy in the calf suit. Okay, we got fooled, but we're not going to get fooled again. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, so it was, you, it was, was sort of
0: like the the survivors, if they got away, the, the, the belief was is that they could then tell. Right. other bison, and and that was the end of this which would be a hardship for the people it
1: would spoil you know kills in the future yeah. and and our belief is and i read this somewhere that um jumps did fail every now and then that and and not just right at the end but during the roundup boom something happened um it was often what we know of the case was often Uh, see there's great prestige in hunting right males especially get a great deal of prestige from this so some people just couldn't quite wait you know and they start shooting arrows at a couple animals early on or run out and like if you run out and touch one with a a staff or something that's a great that's that's a great coup as we call it a, a great status for yourself but you also disrupt the drive so there are real penalties for that in society. You don't do that, but every now and then they couldn't control themselves and they just did it, uh, and then they got in trouble and they maybe were beaten or they had their possessions stolen. But meanwhile, the herd is now long gone. Yeah. It turned and broke through the drive lanes long before people ever ever got to it. So they had you know a very different view of the world from us. But the important thing was to them, these were sentient beings that had a memory. And had uh, observational abilities, it could say, This is how this trick worked. Uh, if, if I escape, and so they killed them all, but they didn't kill them all because they were bloodthirsty, you know, or wanton wasters of, uh, of resources. They killed them all because it was part of how
0: you survive. Their, their belief and their ontology relationship with the animals were yeah. different than what, what we have. So and to now. let them go
1: could mean the end of your people. I understand that, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. How long did that whole process take? just like from from rounding them up to the point when they actually pushed them off the cliff?
1: Uh, It's it's a good question. A lot of it has to do with, of course, how far the animals are from the actual cliff when they first find the group that they're going to work with, whether it's a number of different groups that they pull together. Uh, There are stories that some of them went several days, that they would go out and overnight in an area... Uh, where they know they're going to round some up the next day, move some and maybe gather a few small herds together to, say, 20 or 30 or 40, and then overnight again and then move those some more. Again, always working towards the buffalo jump, towards that opening, uh, open end of the funnel. Uh, We think most of them probably lasted one long full day, that that most of this would happen within a day because – you want to get animals preferably fairly near the jump already. One of the reasons being that's just that much less time you have to work with them yeah. and try to try to get them to do what you want. The longer humans are going to stick around and like go two, three, four days pushing bison around, the more you're pushing, you're lucky that you're going to get away yeah. with it, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and trying, gonna,
0: to, trying to get away with it at nighttime too.
1: Right, like, like you want a fire or something. Well, they're going to smell <laughs> that and, you know, you can't have... You know your smell is a big deal like if your smell gets back into the herd they're gone right yeah so you have to camp downwind you have to always be downwind of and so just being out there is
0: risky uh, i think ideally one long day hmm. now although the, let me tell you this because the winds were important i just wanted to throw that in there right. as well that there was there was the rest of the community was was waiting below like the kill site or the processing area but this all couldn't take place if the winds were blowing the wrong way. The wrong way, because as the herds coming down that lane, unless they're so panicked and they, they didn't, there was a chance they could pick up scent. Right. And then they would know some. they, they, they can't be running towards that, that danger scent. So um, part of orchestrating this whole thing, as I recall, is that they needed also that winds were blowing east the, the day of the drive. That's right. Wow.
1: And, um, and of course, you would expect, you know, once you start to think about these things, you put it all together, you start to think, okay, then by definition, buffalo jumps, wherever they are found, should generally face away from the prevailing wind. And that is, in fact, the case. The vast majority, if not almost all of them, face away from the prevailing wind. So in southern Alberta, almost all of them face east, northeast, or southeast. Every now and then, there's an odd one out there, and we just... You know, kind of, how do you explain that? Well, I don't know. That was for the days. I mean, obviously, wind directions change. They're not, they're not 100% ever from one direction. But you build an entire drive lane and all that for the one day where it's going to be from the north or something. They had, uh, they had the backup plan. plan yeah. B. yeah. I, think, I think it had smashed and there actually kind of was because we found several different jumps there. There isn't just one jump. Yes. And some of those other jumps could be for when the wind was simply coming from a different direction.
0: Now your your descriptions in the book about that, even just talking about it here, like the moment those animals are going over the cliff and the sounds and animals hitting and stuff. I mean, <clears throat> I, I'm a hunter, I grew up with it. <clears throat> um, that's gut-wrenching to think about that. Like, I mean, it's hard enough to take a, a single animal's life to go through that that process and to be thinking about, you know, hundreds of living things, you know, at once. And those sounds like you said broken backs and necks and stuff like that like like that i i, f- I found that a very difficult thing to like visualize and, and think about or, or putting myself there with my values and perspectives and stuff of right now how how i was raised and you did talk about that in the book in the sense of like i, I can't remember whether you said it, caution readers like you can't judge you can't use you know our values now like this is a different thing this is a different set of belief systems it's a different way of looking at the world it's a different situation of how how they fed themselves um but but that that was the that was a really like impactual thing for me in in that book and you know like i'm at peace with it but it would as soon as you start talking about it it was like it was just like i just have this reaction inside like my stomach sort of tightens up man just going oh man what those animals went through right but it's uh that
1: That is very much us, you know, <laughs> today, of course. Uh, I feel the same as you. I mean, I think, my God, there's um, some animals really suffered. And I mean, some were killed almost outright, but some suffered for a while before they died. And, and the amount of blood spilling into the ground and uh, the people just coated in, you know, and of course, then they're opening every carcass up and you've got entrails and stomach contents. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the sights and sounds would. Unbelievable is about the best word you can come up <laughs> with, probably for us. But but we do have to remember these people lived in a very different world, and they didn't, you know, they didn't have the choice to say drive down the Safeway and get the meal in it instead. You know, today you could say, well, hunters, you don't really need to do that. You're not dependent for that on your survival, but these people were, and they, you know, they obviously killed things. Uh, I won't say wantonly, they, but they killed them. I think without some of the embellishments that we give it today, uh, and I mean more things like, you know, um, voles around camp that you catch and throw in the fire and squirrels and um, small game of various kinds, snakes and things uh, that they just ate and they ate very casually. And now bison was different and most of the large game was different in that these were so important to them that they they had ascribed them special status yes. so when you killed all those animals you know you weren't just down there whistling or something like no, that no there was
0: no level of disrespect or dishonor if if anything what i got got from your from your book was it was the opposite it was it was like the highest level of respect it was the highest level of honor for what these animals meant to them and did for them you know essentially al- allowed them to be taken like that so it was Again, just a very different world view, and you really have to work through this whole story and and really um, like open and immerse yourself into that other world world view t- to really take in what yeah. what this what this event was. And
1: I, I guess that's you know you always hope certain th- when you write something you always hope it achieves certain things. And one thing I hope the book try- gets across to readers is to have respect for the way other people manage their lives and to not be judgmental and say, that's gross, or that was cruel, or that, um, must've been, you know, that you were leading to the extinction of the bison or mm-hmm. killing too many
0: or but they not, didn't hate bison. Like they, yeah. they, you know, they, they did this cause they hated them. Like it's, yeah, it's
1: the, uh, you know, at the bottom of the cliff when all was said and done and it was quiet, there's all kinds of rituals and, ceremony that had to transpire. And people would smudge sweetgrass and sing sacred songs and paint their faces and paint the faces of other people and go and eat certain parts of the animals because those parts were sacred and the strongest parts and give certain people select parts of the animal because they were most the perhaps the most revered or most important people. The, I, I, obviously, I skipped a lot about How you pull these things off Because it's such an immense story Especially on the cultural side We've talked more about the animal And the the hunting of it But all the time this is going on There are people clustered in teepees Who are the ceremonialists Who are in a very real sense To the people themselves They're the ones making this happen Mm -hmm. Because they are singing the songs Chanting the chants Smudging the the sweetgrass Essentially calling the animals to this site, saying, we need you to come here. We need you to visit us. And what they're trying to do, through the smudging, they're always smudging sweetgrass. They're blowing it around with eagle fan feathers. They're washing their own faces in it. And they have a tiny little stone that's in the shape of a bison. Mm. And it's called an aniskim. And aniskim is just a Blackfoot word for buffalo. And, they, and the woman, the sacred woman, is in the teepee holding this buffalo, and she's moving it in and out of the smoke from, that's rising up from burning uh, braid of sweetgrass. And she's singing while she's doing this, singing and, re, and moving this back and forth into the smoke. What she's doing is trying to cloud the minds of the animals. The smoke will cloud the minds of those that okay. are back there so that they won't know. Uh, that this trick is about to happen. About huh? to happen,
0: and and then if I remember this right, there was sort of like a like a hunt master designated right, and it, it, one person was in charge and selected the 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 runners or those that would go out and and you know dress like the calf or the wolf or whatever. Was there one person that kind of like orchestrated the whole thing?
1: Um, not so much one person. There was. Where there was one person that was more powerful was really more in the ceremonial world. Okay, There were a few ceremonialists, in particular one woman, the holy woman, who was really the key person that performed those ceremonies that had to be done properly and, and and you had to get a successful report back from that person. Yes, I think the magic is, or the magic, the the uh, spirits are strong today okay. and it's a good day to, to go for the hunt. Then I believe there would be a number of men mostly men at that point, that would be of high status, but probably equal status in terms of they were the masters of the hunt. And they were the ones who would outfit the men in their disguises, make sure they had their instructions of where they were going, who's going to cover this hill, who's going to cover that hill, who's going to approach who at what time. These uh, I believe that fell to several different senior males who were probably retired from those previous positions <laughs> um i don't think you lived a really long life necessarily <laughs> as a buffalo runner that's what we call these people who ran in front of herds on disguises and stuff they probably they, probably a fair bit of fatality or injuries associated with that uh and so but the but the people retired from that and became the masters of the of the hunt in that sense but i i don't see it coming down to or being focused on one person
0: okay okay huh now let's um walk us through a little bit of the um like the the butchering part and and the cooking and then there was a, if this was the fall then essentially they had to start um moving towards the riparian areas and the river bottoms and stuff to for 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 winter camps kind of walk us through the
1: well um, um, you know I've previously described this as a a, p- a pile of now distorted and bashed up 26 pickup trucks lying there and it's now your job to untangle this and go through it and and these animals don't weigh a whole lot less you know individually than a pickup well, a little bit but uh, you've got to pull these massive animals apart because you've got a giant like literally a mound of brown fur that has now stopped moving and quivering and although you may encounter a few stragglers as you pull your way down I guess but they have killed them all off and now what they have to do is spread them all out and get them all exposed. The more, the longer they are covered by each other and buried under other fur, the warmer they stay and that's bad, of course, for spoilage of meat, right? So they pull them all apart and that's a big job in itself. You could have several hundred people here dragging these animals. Fortunately, this site, you've got gravity working for you. Everything from the kill site on is somewhat downhill. Even even at the kill site, it's kind of a downhill slope and then a steep slope down to what we call the butchering processing area down below. So you got a bit of gravity helping you pull these animals off to the sides and down. But you want to get them all at least exposed to the elements individually, so they're not mounded up in any way, because otherwise they really will rot or you know spoil very quickly. So they did that. We think, and I, in my book, I describe it as kind of a um, like an early an uh, early automotive factory plant where it's like a um, a lineup of people who know their specific job so it's like a machine.
0: Yeah like, like the assembly line. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah there's an analogy there like an assembly line that you would go down and do certain things to all of them rather than just say I'll butcher this one I'll butcher that one because that's not if you have a hundred animals that you probably can't possibly butcher that many individually but you can do certain things to them Uh, Collectively, and it's more important to do those things. And specifically, the most important thing, first of all, is to open the hide up along the belly and start to pull it back from the rib cage and then spill the stomach contents out onto the ground. And although, in really bad times, we have lots of accounts of native people cherishing the stomach contents because that's food, you know, and you can eat it, but now you're faced with, you know, hundreds of roasts and steaks. And, and you've got the best of everything. There's a point at which you let some things go here. The blood, for example, was very often collected and made into a, a really um, a favorite soup of theirs. But when you've got 100 animals, all of them dead, and you have to process these, you can't possibly be getting the blood from all of them. So you're gonna, a lot of that's going to spill into the soil. Now you might collect it from 10 or 15 or who knows what. As How many containers have you got? Have you got that many containers so what we think was that they went along all of them opened them up got the skin kind of splayed out like laid out on the ground exposing the rib cage and then spilling the stomach contents because the stomach contents is really where the heat comes from right grass is in there they were just eating moments before you started bothering them and all that uh gastric uh, the acids of the stomach are breaking that down producing heat which keeps them a lot you know and the
0: bacteria yeah
1: and just like us so you need to get that out of there, otherwise that it's all going to just get hot and get spoiled. So we think they did that. Now again, if these were in the fall, as we think most of them were, you've got weather helping you here too. You might have, um, you know, in Celsius, you might have a, 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 temp, a day of 10 or something like that. It's not cold, but maybe it's 5, 10, something, it's a nice sunny day. You've got some sun on your side. Uh, and it's nice temperature, but it's cool enough that the meat will start to cool down. Yeah,
0: yeah the air the air is always cooler than than the animal's body, which right. if, like you said, when it's opened up, it will cool.
1: And there's always a breeze at Southern Alberta. There's <laughs> always a breeze, so <laughs> we, it's blowing. We don't call it a breeze. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's usually more than a breeze. Um, <laughs> you're up against the cliff, which is a little bit protected, but you want some wind, and so they do that, and they then you can go back now what you've done is the basics that will save for you most of the carcasses that they're not going to spoil at this point point. and people are grabbing you know hunks of meat and just eating them raw we know they ate some of the some of the organs the kidneys were eaten raw some of them um, took bites out of the heart and passed them around and you know people you can imagine there's quite a lot of celebrating going on i mean some of the ceremonies have passed people are now really digging in for the the gory part and that's going through these carcasses and as they got them broken, I think they probably broke them down into quarters or something like that. Uh, it's such a big animal. Cut the head off. Um, some of those would go down slope because you want skulls for some things, but some of them stayed up there. And as you, if you can get them into quarters, you got probably manageable pieces that two or three people can lift and manipulate um, you know, if it's a couple hundred kilograms or something like that, you can then lift that onto a hide, which then you like. It could be the hide of the animal you just killed, or other hides that you've brought. All those people from the gathering basin that had already cleaned hides, tan hides. You bring those down as sleds, basically, and you load up these big chunks of meat, and you then literally skid them down slope to the. Um, butchering and processing site down below which was flat well uh, it's, it slopes a bit but okay. relatively flat a good space where you can dig pits and make fires and you can even set up some teepees and um, start working on these carcasses and now all the women all the children old people you know uh, grandparents everybody can help here whether it's gathering chips for fires or throwing more wood on a fire or cutting strips of meat to hang on a on a wood rack that was the drying rack to get them to lose their moisture uh, there's many tasks now that are not so dangerous, not so strenuous that you can only say have the best fit men participating it's so now it literally could have been hundreds of people, hundreds yeah. yeah, we don't know the exact number that came together for these events, but I should mention that this was not um this would not be any group that ever existed in mass for any other purpose, right, like these. The numbers that come together for this are such that it is um, a band, you know, of 50 people from one place and maybe small chiefs band from over here and little sons band from over here. And these are all coming together to make this work. And they're all going to split and divide this. But when it's all over, many of them will split up again and go in different directions. Oh, okay. okay. So these are what What pulled this off was not a single group that lives and stays together year round. These are called band societies, and usually bands are typically fifty to seventy five people, uh, often following sort of one general family leader who's kind of recognized as a, a smart, intelligent you know leader who seems to do good things and not get us in trouble and knows where the game is and provides some leadership. And uh, those come together to make this thing happen. That's why it's called a communal hunt. Okay. Not because there's a lot of animals, but because there's a lot of people. Yeah. And those and, people and don't the, exist. not one
0: single community, but...
1: Right. Yeah, gotcha. Many communities. And after it's over, again, they probably won't stay together as that large group because that presents too big a drain on any local resources. You know, you yes, you've got food you're taking away with you, but you also need wood for fires. You need water. You need, um, you need to do some fresh hunting now and then. And if you're 500 people... That's too much, yeah, you split and go in different yeah. directions.
0: Now you talked about the um, the technique of um, how they started to render like the bones and extract the fat and the grease and the marrow and stuff. Um, maybe just explain that a little bit, and was that done right there at the processing area? It was
1: for sure, and we know that because we've done quite a few digs. Uh, archaeological excavations in that area. And we found a lot of evidence of cooking, boiling, baking, all these things that they did that were part of rendering and processing the animals. So uh, they didn't just haul away thousands of kilograms of food. I mean, ultimately, they did haul away a lot of weight of food, but it had been processed down to something often quite a bit less in weight. And that was, of course, a big part of the reason was that Uh, a few hundred people are very hard-pressed to carry tens of thousands of kilograms of of meat and fat and hide and bones and everything with them so they render it down and if for example if you strip meat thinly and hang it on a rack well water is about 60% of meat content so right there you can reduce the weight almost 60% by just getting it super dry in the Sun right you also by drying it you essentially make it into jerky and it Um, Once it's got that hard little skin on it, you remember when meat sat outside in the sun for even a few hours, it gets that little rind on it. You can tap it with your fingernail. Well, that means flies can't land on it and lay their eggs and stuff, right? So it's, it's already helping to preserve it. And then you can smoke it. And people smoked meat. But they also dug these pits in the ground in a number of different kinds. We generally call them roasting pits and boiling pits. And the boiling pits... Were meant for holding water, so they had to be watertight, and then bringing that water to a boil, and to make a watertight pit. If, you know, these are all things that you most of us don't think. How would, how the hell would I do that? You know, <laughs> I don't have anything to make a watertight pit with, uh, and they don't have a kettle or a cauldron of any size they did make pottery but the pots were quite small like you know bowl or plate size of things we would have today not something you can cook buffalo in so they made pits in the ground by digging out a like a half moon shaped pit maybe down to 75 centimeters or so and then they would push a hide into it and the hide would be one of the fresh ones from a a fresh kill so the inside of the hide is facing up that's the greasy side it's still got meat and fat clinging to it in a few places, but it's watertight, you know, you push that down and fill it, fit it into that hole. Then you can add all the water you want to that. So now you have a basin and the way you bring that water to a boil is you keep adding hot rocks to it and you heat rocks in a fire, which is usually made right next to it. So you don't have to go very far and you have fork sticks that you can lift the rocks with. So these are kind of rounded cobbles, basic river cobbles that you would see, um, in a campfire today and you would lift those when they're super hot put them in the water and you get a great hissing sound and you know some of the rocks break and shatter fall to the bottom and the water gets a little warmer and you you lift out the rocks that have been in there a while and you put them back in the fire meanwhile you put in more hot rocks in and it's this gradual replacement process the rocks get cold you put them back in the the fire they get you know you put more heat into the water and eventually we've done this we've experimented in my campsite and you can create these and you can boil water in 20 or 30 minutes or so. And then you keep the water boiling by just adding more hot rocks and taking cold ones out. And it works pretty well. So we call those boiling pits. Now imagine you're at the end of all a couple of days of all this and you just kind of walk away. And you walk away and you may or may not try and reclaim that hide. The thing about it is, we found because we use the hide, so we know this from experience, um, it's pretty yucky. And that parts that were underground or into the ground and had boiling water in for two days at a time. It's, you know, it's gamey and slimy and mm. uh, lost all its color. It's, um, I don't know and... you can do anything with that. Right. So they may have just walked away from those. I mean, alternatively, if they're more resourceful than me, which is likely, they may have pulled them out of the ground and spilled all the contents around that hole and back into that hole and drag those hides out for something. I don't know. Uh, they may have had uses for them or at least the upper parts that were not underground maybe they cut those away or something. Yeah. But whatever the case, they eventually walked away from these cooking features that they had in the ground and they left behind a big obvious archaeological signature. So
0: that that, that type of processing was going on there. So the boiling was they were there breaking the bones and putting it into extract the grease out of the bones is that that was a
1: big part of what they boiled they boiled bones to get grease out of them and for that they mainly used the bones that we know are richest in grease which is primarily leg bones but but not exclusively and they would break those in small pieces because this like anything today if you're making soup on your stove the smaller you break up say the chicken bones of the chicken you're you're about to render the more you break the bones up the more surface area the hot water has to go to and drag some grease out if you put in big bone you only get what the water can get at. Yeah. So they smash these bones up. It's kind of a nightmare for archaeologists, you know. We're no longer able to identify any of the bones anymore. They're just they could be literally kilograms and kilograms of these smashed now shards. white shards of, of bone matter, uh, buckets full of these things from from these pits. And you can't identify anything except saying it's probably bison and it's probably one of the leg bones just because that's what they typically use. But <laughs> but that's okay because it tells us about other things. It tells us, while well, they were processing bones here and they were rendering grease from them. That wasn't the only... They had what we'll just call cooking pits as well. We think they made soups and stews and all kinds of things like that uh, for immediate consumption. So the uh, rendering of the grease would be so you can skim off the grease la- uh, at the end of the cooking experiment or episode and use that um, in your food later, primarily as add an addition to pemmican so you boil these bones you get the grease out the grease comes to the top as the water cools as it does today in your kitchen and they would skim that off and usually put that in hide bags and save it for later I mean you could eat a little bit right then it's super I mean it's 100% fat practically right it's the most nutritious thing you could possibly eat or just slap some on a fresh piece of meat mm. Man, imagine that right there at a bison kill. But a lot of it was saved for later because they're going to add it when they're making pemmican, which was a critical get us through the winter food, right? Yeah. yeah. But they did boil and cook other things in pits in the ground as well.
0: Yeah. Now the pemmican was, um, it's the meat was dried, pulverized, mixed with the fat and dried typically Saskatoon berries and then made into a cake. And or as I remember that you described it they were made more into like big blocks isn't that right like 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 they make cheese in Italy and then those were wrapped and sewn into tight bundles and that was part of one how they were transported and stored and kept clean and
1: yeah that's right they um, they made them in hide bags they could be of different shapes often kind of oblong or kind of tubular and uh, occasionally round but not so often it's just a matter if you've got as you said, you've got pulverized meat, so they dried it and then pounded it with stone hammers on a, on a, a surface, possibly hide or an actual anvil stone, and it just becomes flakes of powdered powdered meat. And then they mix that with the grease that they've rendered from the bones. It could be other body fats as well that were used in, in making pemmican, but grease is by far the best and preferred, we know that again from historic records. And then, as you say, usually it berries, often Saskatoon's, it gives it... Um, a little nicer flavor in most people's opinion. It also adds tannins uh, to the mixture, which of course is a
0: preservative itself too.
1: Yeah. So you're I adding remember tannic reading that. acid. That
0: was so fascinating. Yeah. So the Saskatoon berries have a tannin in it, which they've discovered um, inhibit bacterial growth. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was essentially a preservative in the pemmican. Right. I mean... It's like eight thousand years ago. Uh-huh. I was well, like, Well, no,
1: don't get carried away. We're not sure they were doing that eight thousand years ago.
0: But the, at some point somebody figured so, that out.
1: Well, and at some point, and I think it's five or six at least five or six thousand years ago yeah. they were making pemmican. We can say that for sure. Yeah. How far back beyond that we don't know yet. Pemmican was not there. The earliest people arrive in the New World and they're killing animals around the plains and Texas and Alberta and other places. They're not they're not smashing the bones and degreasing them. That comes later. Okay. But right now, it's certainly there uh, by six, 7,000 years ago, five, six, seven thousand. It's certainly there by then. So okay. they're doing it practically the entire time Head Smashed In was
0: used. Now, one of the fascinating things about this story is like you're going, you know, you're listening to the, the, how this thing unfolded. This is an incredible amount of work. Is the stones that were used were not from the site, right? Oh, the th- cooking stones. Yeah, they're they're bringing those from <laughs> that's right the river. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Somewhere farther away, down slope. they're bringing them up. And as I remember, like you you put the rock, you heat them, you put them in water, they crack. But then they reused them down to where the fragments got so small they no longer a value because they wouldn't hold heat. They were dumped. Right. Um, and then new stones are brought in. So on top of all of this work that went in there were people over these centuries packing thousands of tons of stone up I because know. it was a resource that was needed a material to but just to accomplish it, my
1: my buddy my buddy my who worked with me for many years bob daw uh, on this project he and i wrote a paper about this and it, it's one of those papers you write that you, you hadn't realized when you started it quite how amazing your work was until you got to the end. And you said, holy smokes, look, this is unbelievable. <laughs> and what we what we realized was that all this stone by, and we had you know, we have evidence of hundreds of cooking pits that it had smashed in. I mean, it, was a, it went on for 6,000 years, right? And they they did this the entire time. And not that they were there every day, because, of course, they weren't. There were probably years where they didn't visit, and then they come back and so on. But over that time, this stone cliff, I should say for your listeners, say, why don't they just, you know, right there at a cliff of rock, why aren't they using that? That is sandstone all of the porcupine hills are cored with sandstone bedrock sandstone of course is a very porous rock with a lot of space in between the sand grains you can rub it with your fingers and you know it comes off in little shards of of sand it's what we all use for sharpening stones and things like that it's an abrasive right and so if you bring that down in a chunk and heat it in a fire and put it in the water like a boiling pit like i just described well for one thing it's going to absorb a fair bit of that water because it's porous. So the water gets into the rock. And then it's going to shed sand grains as it's in there. So you're getting sand grains in all your food and everything. And then as you bring it out, you put it back in the water, or sorry, you put it back in the fire, Well, but it's got a fair bit of water in it. So it's not doing your fire any good. Now, you hear all this hissing and popping because it's starting to burn off the water that's inside the sandstone. And you're going, you know, this isn't a very good rock for cooking with. And it's not. And and we realized they're getting they're using river cobbles of quartzite and granites, uh, and they got to go somewhere to get them. And the nearest obvious easy source is the Old Man River Valley, which is about a two-kilometer walk from the Buffalo Jump, mostly downhill. So. Think about that. Human beings and their dogs had to go down to the river valley for no greater purpose than to haul back a bunch of rocks so you could heat them in a fire and have them break on you where you can't use them anymore. And you got to keep doing this for thousands of years. And how many tons of rocks they must have hauled to, to use them just for that purpose. When another rock was right there in massive abundance, but if you decide as a human that's not good enough, the then you do, you do what you got to do. Yeah. And if I can just add to that, there was a second type of cooking they did in the ground, which we call a roasting pit. I won't go into a long explanation, but in that case they actually preferred the sandstone and they used sandstone slabs and we don't find those river cobbles there. It's just again points out the the ingenuity and the smartness and the resilience of these people that they 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 observe everything around them and say, "You know, we're just we're going to bake in this it's like a like a luau, you know, you're burying meat in the ground and you build a fire on top and that's a roasting pit. But you want it to bake in place. So what you do is you line that pit with slabs of rock that will radiate the heat back and the meat is right in the middle wrapped up in like vegetation so it doesn't get dirty and a big fire on top that bakes it from the top down right and everybody says it's the best food you've ever eaten in your whole life because it's just steeped in juices it doesn't lose it, anything and it's, it's the
0: original slow cooking
1: it is yes, it's exactly that, it that fork tender but the amazing thing is that people either knew well at some point discovered that sandstone is not only good for that it's actually better Because it has flat slab surfaces that you can actually build into a wall and a bottom. Like rounded river cobbles, if you use those, they're all rounded. And they're going to lose a lot more of the peripheral heat that goes around them. These slabs are just like, it's like you built an oven, right? It's an earth oven. That's what it is.
0: Unbelievable. So we
1: dug these. We know they're there. We dug them up. Uh, we had earth ovens made out of sandstone and we had boiling pits with these river rocks, cobbles, because you needed a different rock to do exactly what you wanted to do. Yep. And they were fussy enough and yet smart enough to know what works best. Okay, that's what it costs to do it. That's what
0: we'll have. That's what we'll do. This, this whole thing, <clears throat> the amount of work and ingenuity that went into executing this to me almost sounds like it rivals the building of the Great Pyramids of Giza. Like, like it, and, and that was just, that was like outlandish burial chamber for a pharaoh. This was, this was food for hundreds of people over thousands of years, like the, the very necessities of life, but the work that went into it almost in my mind seems to rival you know,
1: I, you know, and I, in my book, I, I I make the point. I think it's early on in the introduction um, that these things have generally been, as you, part of the passage you read, that they've been unnoticed, they've been unknown, they've been un, unappreciated, and yet they are, one in my opinion, one of the astounding achievements of humans in the millions of years we've been on the planet. And I use this as a as a way of pointing out that we've not seen them and appreciated them, perhaps as we should. That if you that the people who took millions of stones and piled them up in a in the shape of a pyramid are known and revered around the world as oh some of the you know the greatest civilizations of all time and the most advanced clearly the most advanced of all time but as you say what was the purpose of that. It was to bury one dude inside (laughs) it. And, you know, I wouldn't say millions. Thousands of people undoubtedly were slave labor to build that thing. Probably in many cases took dozens or hundreds of years. Or they were
0: to speak to the aliens, whatever you you want to believe. Well, there's (laughs) that too.
1: Yeah. They could have been tractor beamed down by alien ships. But in the case of the drive lanes, they were laid out in lines on the prairies, sometimes going for many, many kilometers involving thousands of rocks. And yet no one knows about them. No one sees them. There's no visitation to something like that, like there is the pyramids, the pyramids, just because it's not seen as a sign of civilization. If they piled them up, maybe they <laughs> would have been recognized. Yeah. They laid them out and they were forgotten.
0: Now, I think pretty much everybody knows the rest of history here. The Europeans came to North America, um, there was the slaughter of the bison nearly drove them to extinction, extirpated them from large areas. Aboriginal people across North America ceased to have them available, you know, to hunt. When was the end of head smashed in Buffalo jump when it was used? Well, of course we
1: don't have an exact date. We can never put our finger on a calendar and say it was, you yeah. know, 19 to 1827 a, a or something. Um, <clears throat> we have evidence of, uh, native people in, in around the, the, around 1800, 1790, to 1800, we have evidence from European uh, journals that right in the porcupine hills, native people were trying to drive bison over cliffs, but they were actually using horses at that time. And the drives were failing because people were just kind of saying, well, let's just see if we can pull this off. You know, maybe if we don't have to do all that work and we can ride alongside of them and spook them over the cliff, so be it. Uh, And this one observer said they were trying their old traditional ways in a new way and it didn't work. So then they'd get out their guns and shoot the animal, right? In that case, it wasn't so important that it worked because they had the guns to to serve as a backup. That was around 1790 to 1800. We know that jumps were still being used uh, in attempt. Uh, We think... After that time, there would be groups that didn't have horses that would periodically come back to the jumps. But sometime, I would guess early in the in the 1800s, probably all of these stopped being used. Once you have guns, once you have horses, nobody's going to do this anymore. So, you know, I've at various points in my career, I've said 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. I don't know an exact date, but I would guess somewhere in there was the last time these jumps were ever used. Right. And we do have photographs. Um, uh, we have photographs of a number of the buffalo jumps from early days, around turn of the century, anyway. And from the nineteen, nineteen eleven or nineteen twelve, there's some photographs of head smashed in, looking up this kind of bone bed, river of bones that literally tra- trailing down from the kill site. And there's even a little human being in there for a scale. Somebody was out for a little Sunday afternoon visit, took a photograph. But you can see the white of the bone that's been bleached by the sun. And those are the bones, of course, of the last animals that would have come over the cliff. And that was shot in, I think, either 1911 or 1912. So um, it would be reasonable to expect, if the last jump was 50, 75 years before that, that those bones would be about in that kind of condition by now. Condition. Yeah. out yeah so something
0: like that interesting wow this is a an amazing amazing story part of canada's history way before canada was ever thought of the history of people in the peopling of north america it's a it's a great story um if you're ever in canada i would make head smashed in buffalo jump Uh, on your list to come and see I would everybody comes here and it's like oh we want to see Banff and the national parks it's like then drive south and you know see head smashed in I'll, I'll leave it to to people to get the book but you were an instrumental player in in creating the interpretive center that's there now the the recognition of that as a as a world heritage site by UNESCO and and you tell that story in your book as well and there's an interesting uh you know kind of little caveat here but in um, was it i can't remember if it was last winter or the winter before um the federal government of canada through national parks uh reintroduced bison into the panther river of banff national park and they were penned for about a year and then opened up and they're hoping for these bison to reestablish, uh, you know, their their wild ways, and whether or not we'll ever see them living out on on the plains and stuff again, you know, again, and and indigenous people being able to hunt them in whatever capacity is probably a pretty tough future for the bison because there's a lot of barbed wire fences and there's a lot of cattle and still fears over tuberculosis, but um, there's still a lot of stories um, that's attached to this big story of you know the hunting of huge herds of bison and I would encourage people to uh to get Jack's book uh the last thing I want to leave you with is um on his book the uh the picture on the cover is of uh of a bison skull that's painted um maybe I'll just let you just say a few little words about that but the full story of that picture what it means, who created it, and the importance of that to the people here is explained in the book. So maybe just finish this off a little bit about what that.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to, Mark. Um,
0: it's. Uh, I think it's a very powerful book cover. <laughs>
1: I'll be honest. I'm. I'm. I'm unbiased, obviously, because I'm the author. Uh, I think it's a very powerful. I wanted that for the cover, and it, it was somewhat controversial in that that is a sacred buffalo skull it's a painting it's a painted skull that's become sacred actually since it was painted but it was painted by a friend of mine a man who actually adopted me as his son and and the man's grandson is is a man who currently works at head smashed in today and in between them the, the son of the elder and the father of the, or the uh, relative of the guy who's working at jump is another good friend of mine and they're all of the same family and the family's called the crowshoes and it was Joe you Sr. who painted that skull and was an, a, a, a friend of mine. And, and he gave me uh, a number of things, including a poster of that skull that he signed and dedicated to me. And when the book was coming out, I thought I really would like to have that on the cover. But I know that you don't want to offend people if you have something that would be regarded as, say, sacred, and it shouldn't be
0: shown. Using a commercial purpose.
1: Yeah. And so... Um, Fortunately, I had been around when Joe actually painted. I was there the day he painted that skull, and he was a good friend, and we had many talks about a variety of things, including what he thought that skull should and should should not be used for. He made it in modern times. He made it in the traditional way. The design is completely traditional, and you can see that on skulls that are 100, 200 years old in museums around the world. But he made it for the jump to use as an interpretive Peace, And he said that. And he said, this is for you to interpret our culture with. And, um, But he said, I don't want this used in a commercial way like um, on T-shirts. Mm. And he, sp- he singled out T-shirts. And I asked him, why T-shirts? And he said, because you could rob a bank in my T-shirt or my design. And then you're being led by the police into, and then there's the press snapping your photo. And your hand's behind your back, and your chest is sticking out. And there's that... <laughs> skull right on your and they said i don't want to ever see that you know yeah. i don't want that but when it came to making a poster for example to promote the site we wanted one poster and i was the one who walked forward with that photo of that skull and said this is it i mean this is the iconic image for this site and we went to joe and said what do you think about using it as a poster he said poster's good he said poster is to get people to come here and and learn the story, and that's what I want. You know, he was very dedicated to this project and to seeing that it was done right. And we have a room dedicated to him at the at the jump that's got his name on the Joe Koshu room, dedicated uh, because he was such a big help in doing this. But he said the poster is good, and we've been selling it in the gift store ever since. And uh, I think it's a, it's a it's been a um, it's, it's, it's a great icon for the story of the site, you know, and Absolutely. kind of encapsulates everything. It's got the human component and the painting, the, the bison component and the skull itself. And so I asked the family. Joe was dead by the time I had written my book, but the remaining family members are all close acquaintances of mine. And I asked permission. I said, can I use that on the cover? And they said, yeah. They said, Joe, they thought would be pleased to see that.
0: No, oh, that's wonderful. Jack, thank you so much. Yeah, it was awesome this was an amazing story uh an amazing journey uh imagining head smashed in aboriginal buffalo hunting on the northern plains by jack w brink find your local bookstore get a copy mine is broken spine <laughs> tattered tagged and i'd be honored if you sign it before we leave <laughs> i'll be happy to do that and,
1: and i want to thank you two guys both um this has been a real pleasure doing this it has, uh, it has. you know I've, it's the kind of thing you, you can tell from my voice I guess I love to talk about this I love the story and I love a chance to, the, the idea that hundreds maybe thousands more will hear this over the years because it's now out there in the it's archived yeah yes um, you know there are various films around the world that have been made that have me in them uh, doing a bit part here and there saying you know the arrowheads are found you know this kind of thing but this is a, this is a much more comprehensive story of sort of almost start to finish and it's archived. You say it's like, um, it's out there now. So absolutely, thank you for your efforts to do this. I appreciate it. And I appreciate it being here. Yeah,
0: Thanks good. for listening, everybody. Uh, pick up the book and go to Southern Alberta and visit Head Smashed in Buffalo Jump. You won't regret it. We'll see you in the next episode.